Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. As we find ourselves continuing to unpack the prologue, that is the first three verses of this message to the early Hebrew Christians, let us uh, look together as I read verses 1 through, we're going to read 1 through 14 just to help set the context of what's kind of going on here in verses 1 through 3. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. Follow along as I read. The Lord says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth the garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Set on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let us bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do now with much fear and trepidation approach the subject of Thy eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a real and proper understanding of who He is and where He now is located and what He is now, in fact, doing. Uh, Father, we ask that you would come now and that you would open our eyes to the truth of thy Son. O Lord, that you would help us to understand as your people what you have granted unto us through Jesus. Oh, what we possess and what we still benefit from in and by Jesus. Help us, we pray, in this message today, O God, to exalt him as the text so rightfully does. It is in the name of Jesus that we approach and offer this prayer. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue to unpack what I described last week as the universal lordship of Jesus Christ, as you see in your notes. 
And we're going to do that by looking at, I believe we're just only going to be able to get through the, half, the first half of verse number three. And by doing so, unpacking the universal lordship of Jesus Christ, further developing that, understanding it properly, whatever conceptions and our imaginations of Jesus that presently resides within our minds, I hope at the end of the message today, they will be either A, as you see in your notes, reinforced where those conceptions of Jesus line up with Scripture. So in other words, this first R um, carries with it the idea of reinforcing Christian orthodoxy. And so for those of you who have biblically defined orthodox views of Jesus, hopefully today that would be reinforced. However, for those that may be here today or listening to this perhaps later, where there are some things that are just a little not right with our conception of Jesus, I hope the second R will come into play and your conceptions or thoughts of Jesus will be reformed. And those who all together don't know Jesus at all and may by chance be listening to this message, I hope that your misunderstandings of the witness of God himself about his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, will be replaced with truth and, uh, in contrast to lies. So as we go through the message today, I'm going to be using these three R's to help us apply what we learn. Assuming that no one today here suffers from a, uh, I learned about this in preparation of this message, from a disease known as aphantasia. Assuming no one here suffers from aphantasia, that's the inability to develop word pictures in your mind. So I could say, think of an apple, and you can't picture an apple in your mind. Uh, I don't think anyone here suffers from that, but there is a real condition of that. So since I don't think anyone suffers from that, I want to ask you, what would you think of if I asked you to close your eyes and imagine Jesus? What what, what would you think? I think that no doubt, using your sanctified imagination, most of you would have an image of your mind that closely resembles that of a recent movie you watched. You would close your eyes and you would think of Jesus in the sense of a recent painting you saw or something in your childhood tradition or in your church tradition. Uh, for Naomi, a little one here today, perhaps when I say, what do you, what, what, when, you, when you close your eyes and you think of Jesus, what's the picture in your mind? It's maybe a cartoon illustration, perhaps. And these are all things that, again, has been seared in our memories from our visual senses. I'm pausing on purpose here because let's just admit it, you're doing it right now. You, you, have a word, you have a picture in your mind right now, perhaps. Well, despite the second commandment that expressly prohibits the making of any visible representation of God, including any person of the Trinity, man-made images of Jesus in various forms throughout the ages have been used, haven't they? And we know in our church history classes, they mostly were beginning to grow prominent in the 8th century amongst the Greek Orthodox Church and then in Roman Catholic societies. 
And that's what started in the 8th century, the great, what was called iconoclastic controversy. Because the church had never used images of Jesus before that. And the Christians were upset about it and they were concerned. And so there was a great schism. So since the 8th century, thousands of images of Jesus have been produced and they have been seared within our memories and our thoughts about who Jesus is. Surprisingly, these man-made images of God or persons of the Trinity, which used to be only common to the Greek Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic societies, are also really utilized a lot amongst modern-day Protestants. And it's because of this indifference to God's law that no matter how hard we try as Christians, centuries upon centuries of tradition producing thousands of these images of Jesus has been branded upon our minds and they trick us and bear a false witness upon us of the real Jesus. Now, about Jesus and any description we can have about Jesus as part of my introduction, as you see in your notes, the only real description we have of Jesus can be found in Isaiah 53 verse 2. You have it in your notes. It says, he, referring to the Messiah, referring to, to, the, to Jesus, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when, he, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire of him. So in other words, Naomi, what the Bible tells us about Jesus is that he's not going to be handsome. Uh, He's not going to be a man who's tall and robust and favorable to look upon, right? And so with that said, and in connection with these images and these traditions of who Jesus is or who we think or what he looks like and things like that, I hope that we can put away that image, maybe some of you know it, of Jesus' Uh, me and Nolan were talking about this, kind of like a Californian. we got a, Flor- a Floridian with us today. Praise the Lord. Good to have you, brother. Uh, but we can put away this image of, a, of a, a guy who's like a, a white guy who's tanned. He's got blonde hair and a blue sash. That, that's really popular in the older children's books, right? I, I hope that we can put away that image of Jesus. That, that this is probably the, the worst depiction of what Jesus really looks like. Not only is this what I call metro boy image of Jesus wrong, but also those images of Jesus that may have come to your mind that depict him as anorexic, uh, just a skeleton of a man hanging upon a cross. Well, that's not the real Jesus either. That's the wrong perception or conception of Jesus. And even those images that we are... Uh, we have grown fond of seeing around certain times of the years where he's a cute, cuddly little baby in the arms of Mary. Listen closely. All of these images of Jesus, while on the one hand may help frame historical narratives of his earthly ministry, and those images of Jesus are what largely were popping in your mind as we've been talking about this, while they do on one hand help us frame accurate historical narratives of his earthly ministry, on the other hand, they severely cripple a correct impression of Jesus in our minds. He is not a cute, cuddly little baby. He's not an anorexic skeleton hanging on a cross. He is not a 
white, blonde-haired, tanned, surfer-looking guy. No, what we see today is that he is the exalted creator, king of kings, and all of his glory residing at the right hand of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is the real Jesus. And so then, let us consider in our text today, in order that we may have a correct, biblically informed view and perception of Jesus the Son as the appointed heir of God Almighty. For that's what the text says. Look again with me at your text. God, who has sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, of God's glory, and the express image, some of your texts will say, the exact representation of his person. Whose person's? God's person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins he sat down on the right hand of majesty on high and so how do I want to approach unpacking this text today well this whole concept about a conception or a perception of the real Jesus I want to do it by first understanding the son's divine nature that's in verse number three And then if we have time, which I'm not sure we will, I want us to consider the Son's work in providence and redemption. All right? That's mentioned in verse 3. And then we're going to look at, in the last part of verse 3, the Son's current station. Where is He at? And what's the station of the Son teach us? So just to begin, let us consider, as you see in your notes, the Son's divine nature the Son's divine nature. Now, this heading for us, His divine nature, naturally divides itself up in verse number 3 with two very poignant descriptions, doesn't it? The brightness of God's glory, and the author says the exact, or you could say exact representation, or the authorized version uh, that I'm reading from says the expressed image of His person. So let's just consider the brightness of God's glory as we're seeking to understand a correct perception of Jesus Christ, the appointed Son of God and heir of all things. The inspired writer begins with this detailed description of the Son with a very important present participle that we must take special note of, and it's the word being. Almost all translations retain this present participle. Jesus being referred to in verse 2, the Son being referred to in verse 2, verse 3 says, who being the brightness of His glory. As you see in your notes, the reason it is so important, this present participle, this word being, is because it expresses that which is intrinsic and eternal in our understanding of the Son's nature, and it stands in contrast, Nolan, of the Son having to become. You see, that's what that word's doing in the Greek. It's communicating the idea that He is and contains intrinsically as part of His nature the very glory of God. There wasn't something that had to be added to Him. He didn't have to perform a certain task in order to receive this glory. The text is very clearly teaching 
that he is the glory, the brightness of God. Some of your translations may say the radiance of God's glory. In other words, this little word in the original Greek perfectly establishes in the minds of the original audience that which is eternally natural or innate to Jesus as being divine with God. That little word, who being the brightness of His glory. This truth of Jesus as Son, being equal in nature with God, it is something that the writer of Hebrews is going to continue to have as an overarching theme as he goes through this message to them, to remind them, of course, that it's because of His uniqueness as God coming in the flesh is why He is a superior priest and why He has a superior mediatorial position in a better covenant than the old Mosaic covenant. And so, with the inauguration of the new covenant through Jesus' blood, we're going to see the writer of Hebrews continually come back into this theme that God come and He came down in flesh and did this Himself. Now, just before we leave this thought about the importance of the word being and what it's communicating, let us be careful to also acknowledge that what we just observed with just this introductory word being also establishes and qualifies what made the Son the perfect choice for God's supreme revelation of Himself. In other words, how could anyone rightly, how could anyone truly know God's supreme revelation of Himself without knowing His appointed heir who is the radiance of His glory? This is why the ancient Nicene Christian church creeds would describe Jesus and the necessity of knowing the Father, knowing God through Jesus, describing Jesus as, quote, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. What they're trying to establish and what they're trying to uh, protect in the early gospel understanding, Naomi, of the church is that there is no way Anyone can rightly know the God creator of heaven, of all heaven and all earth, unless they know Jesus, his son. Why? Because Jesus is God's way of reflecting to all of his creation, his glory and his goodness. Without Jesus, without properly knowing Jesus, you cannot know God the Father. And so the early Nicene Creed wanted to protect that. But you know what? Where did they get that from? What's the basis of that? Well, they get it from the very words of Christ himself. As you see in your notes, Jesus said this much, didn't he? In John 14, as recorded in verses 6 and 7, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and ye have seen him. You see, Jesus was communicating that same message as well. Well, now let us deal with this aspect of the brightness of God's glory, or as some translations say, the radiance of God's glory. We come to what one commentator describes as the Son being, quote, 
the outstreaming of eternal light, end quote. Or, as a scholar by the name of Treffery in a book that he wrote called The Doctrine of the Eternal Sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ said, quote, Here the sun can be likened as the secondary light, you hear the play on words, brightness of glory, radiance of glory. Here the sun can be likened or compared to as the secondary light radiated from an original light like the rays of a sun, end quote. Now there's a lot that we could be that could be said and we could delve into with this association of light and with God. However, for the sake of our time today and to stay upon our task, let us just simply observe, as you I believe have in your notes in 1 John 1 5, where it explicitly says that God is light. By saying then that the sun is the radiance or the brightness of God's glory, the inspired author is communicating whatever can properly be conceived by us and understood by us of what God's glory is, it finds its purest reflection, its absolute reflection in Jesus the Son. So if we just took all of our lifetime to do an exegesis of the scriptures, to comprehend what is God's glory as ancient, I shouldn't say ancient. Some people sometimes feel like they're ancient, I'm sure. But as aged hoary heads, we would tell someone, I have studied God's revelation through his word since the beginning of my life, whatever they would say, you know, I'm, I'm drawing a word picture here in this illustration. I have read every great author about God's glory. I have memorized all the verses about God's glory. And this one thing I can tell you, in my lifetime of studying just this one aspect of God's glory, Jesus, His Son, is the perfect reflection of His glory. As you see in your notes, there was a necessity for the Son to serve as a mediator, a reflection of God's glory. Because we ourselves could never approach God. We could ever, never know God in His glory. Because the Bible witnesses that He is unapproachable. That no man could see Him and survive. You have provided for you this witness from Scripture in 1 Timothy 6.16. A description of God that describes God as dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. This, of course, finds its basis. Paul drew, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, from the Old Testament witness in the book of Exodus, where God told Moses, as you see in your notes, Thou cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. You see, beloved, this is one of the reasons when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, reflecting all of God's glory, come into flesh, into the world, and began His earthly ministry, many of the Pharisees could not accept Him. They would not accept Him. It was inconceivable in their minds that God, who they knew very well from Exodus 33 
could never be looked upon. But yet, here's John the Baptist and here's other people and here's this man named Jesus of Nazareth who's describing himself as God. It was inconceivable in their minds that God could put himself into flesh. But yet with the writer of Hebrews talking to these early Hebrew Christians who had already had their eyes opened unto this truth as first century Christians, he's reminding them that this is exactly what God has done. He has sent a reflection of all of his glory in the best, purest representation that it could ever be conceived of in his son, the Lord Jesus. We were just considering Exodus 33 and that witness of how God understood Moses couldn't look at him. And and indeed, the original uh, readers of this message would have picked up on this too. This this, uh, word imagery saying that the sun is the express or he is the, the brightness of God's glory. They would have understood that Moses requested to see God's glory. They would have remembered that... Um, he wanted to seize God's glory, but God knew that there was no natural man, and that is man in his uh, human physical composition, that could live uh, by God showing his full blaze of glory. And so remember what he did for Moses? He just gave Moses a wee little bit of a glimpse of his glory. And we know it left Moses with a rather unique skin complexion afterwards, right? But how did God then, how did he... Um, have his presence amongst his people before the sun came into the world? How was God's glory communicated in their presence prior to Jesus' incarnation? Well, as you see in your notes, God gave them designed sanctuaries through the tabernacle and through the temple and other ways to demonstrate that His glory was amongst them, but they could not see it. It was God's way of being amongst His people, but at the same time being consistent with His own holy nature and character. So prior to the Son's incarnation, God's glory could only be known in these shadows and in these pictures. And it wasn't until the fullness of time, according to Galatians, that God sent His Son, the Eternal Son, to come and to be a reflection and a teaching of all that he wanted his people to know. This type of prophesied imagery uh, referring to the sun as the brightness of God's glory regarding Jehovah's visible presence would have deeply spoken to these early Hebrew Christians as the Spirit of God no doubt recalled to their minds the former words of their prophets. Let's look just at one example of the prophets declaring that God would come in the Messiah and show forth His light, a reflection of His nature, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 59 through 20, all the way through chapter 60, verse 3. I've given you here in your notes chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, because I think it's the most concentrated uh, prophecy of this event, of the Messiah uh, making known God's glory and His presence amongst His people. Follow along as I read there in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1-3. through Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah inspired by God's Spirit, he says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. 
For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Now, now note, notice closely. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen among thee. His what? His glory shall be seen upon thee. But remember, God's glory cannot be seen by any man, and that man live. So he is, of course, talking about the Messiah here. That is how God's glory is going to be seen. And notice beautifully in verse 3, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light. And kings, wow, notice the parallel, the kings to the brightness of thy rising. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Jesus came as a reflection of the perfect glory of God and the Gentiles were attracted to that light. They were attracted to God's glory. They could see the reflection of God in the earthly ministry in the person of Jesus the Son incarnate. Kings likewise. We read in church history and we see how that the Viking kings and, and other kings would be subdued by the gospel of what? Jesus Christ, who is the reflection of God's glory. This was how God's, God the Father was going to choose to reveal His glory unto mankind and be amongst His people. All of this is a very limited man's way of describing something of the divine nature that is communicated in the phrase, Jesus the Son being the brightness of God's glory or the radiance of God's glory. You can't even go much farther than that. I would be sounding like a broken record up here if I kept going farther than that. But prior to moving on to consider his expressed image and what's in that phrase, let us pause and consider the weight of what is here before us, beloved. The text is teaching us that in the Son, there is as if it were a mirror of the very nature and the person of the Father. We got that. We put it in our little memory banks here. We have that in our theological book, sitting on the bookshelf. God's glory, which also in the Scripture is equated with His goodness, in this phrase by the inspired writer Hebrew, is being described as the best reflection and can only be found in one person, the Son. But how do you apply that? How do you seek to take that theological truth that supersedes the limits of our finite minds and intellect? Well, remember the three R's. Let's consider, first of all, how it helps us to reinforce what is true about a proper perception of Jesus, despite maybe thousands of images and traditions that we've thought of. Well, dealing with the reinforcement of what is true and right, Our Christian belief that through the Son we can only truly know and love the one true God and Creator of all heaven and earth is accomplished by knowing the Son. Because all of God's glory and goodness is revealed to us in Him. This truth is reinforced me and Brother Earl were talking about this on the way to church this morning. 
of only really knowing God through Jesus and the gospel that he offers. Because every single one of us in here, prior to knowing God our Father through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we probably had some conception about God, always usually wrong. Um, We conceived that, yes, he was a just judge. We grew up probably hearing that he judged sin. Uh, We had wrong understandings that he could ever love someone like me. Um, We grew up understanding that only certain people would be accepted by God. We looked at the church and we think, well, if that church is a reflection of God, then they got everything together and I don't. So there's no way I could really fit in there or belong there, right? But then when you hear the gospel, you understand that it is through the Son that there's the only possible way I can ever really know the grace and the love of God. Because without the Son, all you have still left with is law. You have no grace. You have no mercy. And so it's not until you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ do you understand truly how you can be connected with God. And it is not through how many systems of religion are formulated today through a keeping of law, a keeping of rules, a checking off of boxes. This is the horrible blindness of even modern day Judaism and Islam. They still review God this way. And that's why they will never know the immense love, the immense mercy, forgiveness and grace that you and I, beloved, have experienced at the foot of the cross when we were introduced to the Son. Amen? Well, what about reform? What does this glimpse of the brightness of God's glory in the Son help us to possibly reform from as the church where it may be needed? Well, from what we have learned in connection with Jesus being the reflection, the radiance, the brightness of God's unapproachable glory. Friends, is it not irreverent to the very nature that we just learned about? A very irreverent approach to the reflection of God's very own glory in His Son as He's chosen to reveal Himself? To speak of Jesus, the Son, as our, quote, homeboy, as I hear so flippantly said amongst the modern church today. Or wearing, as my son saw just recently, uh, not being overly critical, but just being sensitive to the reverent name of Christ and having a proper understanding of who he is. Saw a young Christian man wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus is dope. You see, this type of foolishness this type of irreverent handling of the real Jesus ought to be reformed out from us as His followers, shouldn't it? He is the expressed radiance of all of God's glory. He's not your homeboy. He is not dope. He is radiant. He is sovereign. Oh, let us have much more reverence. But what about those who need something totally replaced as a notion or misconception of the real Jesus that we're learning about today? 
Well, as you have in your notes, any notion that by, by mere natural revelation, which we dealt with back in verses 1 and 2, with the way God speaks to us through His Son, any notion that natural revelation, that is creation, and God does speak, the psalmist says, to us through the stars and the heavens above, that is not itself sufficient to truly know the one true and living God of all heaven and earth, is it? No, it's not. You must know Him, the brightness of His glory through His Son. And there are many people today that worship creation in a way. They would never maybe say it that way. But they're relying on their connection somehow mystically and spiritually with the created world of how to know God. And they fail to understand that He has chosen to be known through His Son. Well, let us move on here in our text. So far, under this first heading, considering the Son's divine nature, we've been examining His being, as the text says, the brightness and the radiance of God's glory. And when this is fully and properly interpreted, it does speak of a complete revelation which the Father provides Himself in the person of the Son. The author, in other words, could have stopped right there. And the original readers would have properly understood in connection with the uh, word imagery that we just went through and with the prophets Isaiah and with the connection and their understanding of God's glory and the meeting between Moses and God upon Mount Sinai. They would have got the message. They would have totally understood it. However, though, now our attention is drawn to the next description that we have of the Son's divine nature offered in the text where it says He is the express image of of God's person. Now, this kind of seems a little bit repetitive, doesn't it? It says that the Son is the express image of God's person. And we might ask, isn't this just another way of simply saying that the Son is the brightness of God's glory? Well, the answer is yes, it is, and no, it's not. As Dr., as you see in your notes, as Dr. Robert Paul Martin suggests, perhaps... The reason for this next phrase is an accommodation to our human experience in which light and its radiance can be, can't it, diffused? Light diminishes with distance. Something can obscure light's reflection. You hang a sheet in front of a spotlight, it diffuses the light. The the light's not as bright. And so... Dr. Paul Martin says here, perhaps this statement the inspired writer is offering to accommodate our experience and our understanding of light, right, that can be diffused at times, so that to give us an understanding of something that is an image with all of its features corresponding to the original. The, The phrase express image could also be translated as exact representation, I say this because in the Greek, the word carries with the idea of of a die or a stamp um, impressing upon it its exact image. And so what Dr. Paul Martin is kind of saying there, he's saying, you know, um, so there's no misunderstandings here about the divine nature of the Son. One could perhaps think that maybe the light and that understanding Uh, could not be exactly 100% of the original source of the light. He uses this additional Greek phrase, the expressed image of his son, which unlike light, 
in that illustration, in that communication, which we all just acknowledge can be diffused, what the author here is teaching is that the Son is God's exact, no variation, representation. With this now in our consideration, that infinite distance that truly exists between the divine nature of God's glory, which no man can know, and our own conception of that incomprehensible God, it can be and indeed is only bridged by here the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nolan, let that sink in for a moment. The incomprehensible God of all things who created all the heavens and the earth, He chose to communicate to us. He chose us and He chose to communicate to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, You read the Gospels. He didn't go to those who thought that they were already saved. He didn't go to those brother Earl who thought that they had already arrived. What did Jesus do? He came and He healed the sick. He saved the lost. This is where we meet the Son, Nolan. This is where we meet God, our Creator. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. Realizing that I don't deserve one ounce of goodness from him, Earl. When the gospel is faithfully communicated, it shows us and our fallenness and reflection to his thrice holy law. Oh, but the gospel through the son, God's exact representation of how he chose to communicate to us. It shows us mercy and it shows us love. And this is what has subdued all of our hearts, isn't it? That we will, at times, maybe look to the left. And we, may be able, and we may, at times, look to the right. But going back to Jude this morning, oh, how we will endeavor by His grace to keep ourselves following the Savior. We know by this phrase, express image of His person, In the Greek, it denotes the most basic essence of a thing. Express image conveys the idea of an exact representation, such as, as I said, a stamp upon hot wax, a die shaping a material. But now we understand by this phrase, his express image of his person, of God's person, is being denoted the basic essence of God's nature. And thus here, Jesus is called the exact representation of God's very nature. And this is why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus right here. Beloved, I told you when we started off in verse 1, what is contained in this prologue about the witness from Scripture regarding the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, it serves as the main pillar supporting the superstructure of all of the Christian faith. I'll say it again. The resurrection has its place. The incarnation has its place. 
The cross has its place. But without this, Christianity is in the lot in the category of all other religions. Jesus, we must never be ashamed of saying it. Jesus, as we sung in the hymn, is our God. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. Thank you. He is, in other words, the perfect likeness of God, the image of the divine substance, identically the same in essence with the Father. As you see in your notes, He is not to be considered in this phrase, being used in the Greek, Nolan. He's not to be considered a copy of God. He is the Son who comes forth from the Father's very essence in eternity past. That's what we're seeing in verses 1 and 2, namely in verse 2, where it says He was the creator of the world. We unpack that a little bit. We're speaking of eternal matters here. He didn't become the Son upon creation. He's eternally being communicated in this prologue as being, the present participle, always the Son, eternal. Now we might ask, when exactly did the Son, in the express image of God's person, come forth from the Father's essence? I know we're getting a little long in the message here. Put on your thinking caps. Because we're trying to have a correct conception of the real Jesus today. When, I'll say it again, when exactly did the eternal Son, in the express image of God the Father, come forth from the Father's essence? Well, the answer is, there is no when. There is no when did the Son come forth from the Father's essence in His perfect image as a reflection of His personhood. There is no when. Why isn't there? Because the short answer is, is that our triune God is eternal. He is not bound by time, but He is timeless. He has no beginning. And so this intra-Trinitarian understanding of the eternal Son coming forth from the eternal essence of the Father can never be considered in categories of when did it happen because they are not bound in time. They are eternal. I like how theologian Matthew Barrett rightly observes. Uh, we have a Table Talk uh, reader here today. Uh, I got this from Table Talk, by the way. So Matthew Barrett rightly observed that, quote, a succession of moments cannot be applied to him. He just is. That means this following question is very relevant before we move on. Here's the question. If God is timelessly eternal, what does that mean for the Son and His generation, or as I've been saying, coming forth from the essence of the Father? What does that mean uh, regarding His generation from the Father is the question. I repeat it. If God is timelessly eternal, what does that mean for the Son and His generation from the Father? Here's the answer. Unlike human generation, the Son's generation is eternal. There never was a time when the Son was not, nor ever a time when the Son was not from the Father. Does that help? There has always, in other words, in eternity past, been a father 
and his expressed image in a son from eternity past. We've dealt with this in our Sunday school classes at times when that word begotten, a lot of times people wrangle that word. And it does naturally carry with it in our minds this idea of, especially because of the genealogies in the Bible where it says, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And we're always thinking of the word begat and these categories of, you know, humans having children, things of that nature. And so when we read that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father, we immediately pop into our heads, oh, yeah, he had a beginning, you know, he had a starting point. And, but we looked at, that's not the right way to look at that word. And that's not how it's used. And it's not only used one way in the Bible, okay? Here, when it's referring to Jesus, it's referring to this unique relationship where he and the saints sharing the same essence of the Father enjoyed in the Trinity and eternity past. As the old Calvinist Baptist, John Gill said, without this eternal generation, this understanding that's being expressed here in verse Uh, three today of Jesus being the express image of God's person, this eternal sonship. Without this eternal sonship, no proof can be made of his being a distinct divine person in the Godhead. And if that can't be proven, he is not worthy of worship. And that's exactly what the Jews say. And that's exactly what the Muslims say. And this is exactly what a lot of other religions say. He is not God. They say, you poor Christians, you're deceived. He even never even taught, he never taught that he was God or equal with God. Well, sadly, they've never read the Gospel of John for one, and where Jesus does not quibble one bit about equating himself with the Father. All of this understanding of the eternal generation of Christ being the expressed image, the brightness of God's glory, uh, all of this understanding of his, his divine nature that's being communicated here, which the writer of Hebrews is going to continue to build upon, is what led John Owen, he's one of the most prolific, uh, exhaustive expositors of the book of Hebrews, okay, to say this one thing. All the glorious perfections of the nature of God do belong unto and dwell in the person of the Son. The whole manifestation of the nature of God in us and all the communications of grace are immediately by and through the person of the Son. I want to say that last part because if you just hear and you don't think about it, you'll miss it. Owen said, all communications of grace are immediately by and through the person of the Son. We're going to pick up with that next week when we deal with the Son's divine work in providence and redemption. But just as a teaser, think about this. Owen is saying, as the Father, God, as He chose as His supreme revelation, His Son, to communicate His glory, it is through the Son, all capital letters, communication of grace, have been revealed to us by God the Father. And what ought to be triggered in your mind is, wait a minute, Jesus was born in time, space, and history. How, was he communi- how could he be the communication of all grace from God the Father to all of mankind 
when Jesus had a, 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 an earthly ministry that began. Well, friends, going back to what I was saying earlier, these sanctuaries that God presented to be uh, a token of His presence, of His glory with His people, you do know, do you not, that all of those things were pointing to the Messiah? So it is as if it were the lamb that was sacrificed each year. It was pointing to the Messiah who thus those who place faith in that system, that I should say the system, I would say faith in the promise of that system. How was the grace communicated through them? Not through the lamb. Not through the blood of goats and the blood of lambs and all of that. It was communicated to them through the Messiah, the promised Messiah then, yet to be revealed, it was communicated to them by faith in the Messiah. And that's why Owen says, look through all of redemptive history beginning in the book of Genesis to the end. All communications of God the Creator to us as man is through the Son, and they are. Before it was in types and shadows, here we stand on this side of the cross, and we understand his name is Jesus and he came to earth. You know, we see it that way. But all communications of God the Father are through the Son. Well, we're going to come to a close in our message today. Uh, I don't even want to begin to unpack and look at this concept of how he, through his providence, uh, is upholding all things, which again is just another aspect of this gem that we hold up that we're calling the universal lordship of Jesus. But let's seek to just apply, uh, before we close our time together, this aspect and this understanding of God's express image of himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the three R's. What kind of reinforcement does this offer for the people of God? Well, as you see in your notes, our Christian belief that when we sing praises to Jesus, we are singing praises to God. To magnify the Son in our worship is not blasphemy, as the Jews and Muslims cry. It is God's will in how He is to be worshipped. If any society of people who call themselves Christians don't make much of Jesus in their worship, friends, they're missing the mark of what God's communicating to, here, uh, communicating to us here today in His Son with regards of his being the reflection of the brightness of his glory and also his expressed image. So this reinforces that we are on right ground, Christians, of worshiping Jesus in our midst. But what about reform? Is there anything possibly that we could reform in our worship or or in our understanding, our conceptions of Jesus as we walk away from this portion of the text? From general references to deity, while there are acceptable general references here in the West, especially in the United States of America, unto deity, you hear some of our politicians speak of the Almighty. They'll speak of um, God sometimes. Um, what are some of the other common ones? They'll, they'll speak, you, you get the point. They, they speak of a general deity. It's, it's a kind of a virtue signaling, right, to the... Um, Confessing Protestants and, and Christians in, in, in America. I think this is why a lot of politicians do it. To their credit, there are some legitimate believers, I believe, but you, but you get the point. There is, in at least the West here in America, there is a certain level 
of general reference to deity tolerated here. Okay? But that shouldn't be the case with Christians. That shouldn't be the case with us, beloved. As God's people, learning today especially, none of us can walk out of here today and say, God expressly wants to be known by His expressed image and the reflection and the radiance of His glory by His Son, who we know His name is Jesus. Right? That's clear in today's text. This is His chosen line of communication of Himself in Jesus. So He requires us to acknowledge the Son and not just a general deity. I have just a simple illustration here by way of testimony of the power of the name of Jesus Christ in this. There was uh, 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 some people who wanted, you guys know I work in construction and we're learning about this new stuff you put behind insulation before you put masonry walls up. And so there was this sales rep who wanted to come over to our shop and communicate to us, hey, this is the system you ought to use, and uh, you know this is why it's superior, things like this. And he had a young lady with him from Nigeria. And so they wanted to give us Subway. They bought lunch. That's how you get to get guys in construction to go along with you. You buy them some good food. So they brought us some Subway, bought us lunch. And I said... Before we started, I said, hey, I said, we are Christians. Would anyone be offended if I say a word of prayer? Now, I could have been tempted in that prayer, couldn't I? To maybe just refer to God, even the Father, right? And just kept it kind of up there in the general uh, stratosphere. No, I didn't do that because of this. I gave God the glory in acknowledging that through thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ... You've enabled all of us to gather around this table to earn an honest living for our family. You know, I, I forget the exact words. But I exalted the name of Jesus. I wanted these people to know that every blessing, the air that they're breathing, comes from what? His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what I wanted them to know. And you know what, friends? Afterwards, that Nigerian lady, she commented, and she said, or first the sales rep did, he says, are you a pastor? And I said, well, yeah, I happen, to be, I happen to be a pastor. And then she said, oh, I could tell by your prayer that you were trained in the ministry. And I had to correct her. I said, oh, no, 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 dear. No, dear. I said, either one of these two men, I work with two uh, solid Christian young guys. I said, either one of these two guys could have prayed like that. I said, because we know Jesus. It wasn't, but, but you hear, beloved, what I'm trying to say is because we acknowledge the crown of Jesus in our prayer, We spoke to God the Father through Jesus in our prayer. Something touched that lady. She could recognize there was something different about these people who are religious. They know they have something that whatever she has been around in Christianity has never experienced before. And she acknowledged that. And I was trying to get her to see it's not about words. It's about a relationship. It's about who we know. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, if you find yourselves in places of influence in general society and you're ever asked to pray, make sure that you use the name Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we ought to, wherever it shall exist, hopefully this shouldn't exist in the church, any notion that somehow Jesus is less than God. We don't have time to unpack that. I've already went over my time, but... There are pockets within 
what is called Christianity. They have a cross in their church where people are getting into silly mysticism, uh, silly aspects of trying to blend Christianity with other things that are not biblical, and they begin to lower the deity of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jude that we read this morning, I'll just say in closing, one of those is the, uh, the, the Latter-day Church of the Mormons. Um, they need to replace their faulty heretical view of Jesus with the real Jesus we learned about today. He is and he forever will be God. Let us close with a word of prayer. Our triune, holy God above, we come out of this very feeble attempt of understanding something of the wealth of revelation that you have in the text today in verse 3 concerning the divine nature of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, as I said in the message today, the core pillar of our faith that Jesus, being God, left all of the glories above to come into this lowly world and to die for his church. And oh God, I pray that you would help, help us to rightly hold on to and to correctly apply these truths in our worship, in our conception of Jesus, of our reverence to Jesus, and to be prepared to stand at the gates and defend these truths against those, as in our closing remarks, want to identify as Christians, but deny these truths of His deity. Give us, I pray, Lord, wisdom. Give us discernment. And though, if anything, as we approach the Lord's Supper, remind us of the great love that you have for us in thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in the name of your revealed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.